Okay, if you would take your Bible this evening and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. They sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So the title of the message tonight is, Be Not Ignorant. Be Not Ignorant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your word. And as we look into the word of God tonight, we'd find encouragement in strength and hope, uh, knowing that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose wherewith it's sent, that you do keep your promises, that we can rest upon the promises of God and the assurances we find in the scriptures that are given to us and for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. There are quite a few places in the Bible that the Bible uses phrases like this, be not ignorant. Or it's, don't be without knowledge. Don't be without understanding concerning these things. You know, in fact, in, and we'll, and we'll just look at a few of these as we get started, but in Romans chapter 10 and verses 1 through 3, he tells us to not be ignorant about the, the God's righteousness. Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, that they might be saved. For I bear them record, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And, and so Paul's writing here, concerning particularly the Jews, who had the Scriptures, who had knowledge of God, but it was... Or they had a zeal of God, but was not according to knowledge, not according to right understanding. They were really ignorant about how to obtain the righteousness of God. Do you realize that's most of the world tonight? That's the majority of people in our world today. They are ignorant about how to actually obtain the righteousness of God or to be made right with God. Just like the Jews, many are dependent upon doing good works. Doing good works. Whether that be going to church, doing good social services kind of things, or, or whatever it might be, doing good works. And recently that goes back to the idea of keeping the law. You know, the children of Israel pride themselves in keeping the law to save them. In fact, if you look in Luke chapter 18, Jesus contrasts this in Luke chapter 18. He tells us about the, 
a Pharisee and a publican, and then he tells us about the rich young ruler, and he's contrasting the two and, and, and really revealing to us the ignorance concerning the righteousness of God or how one obtains salvation. In Luke chapter 18, and, and verse uh, 18, he says, A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he, again, he, he's asking the wrong question. He's asking, What shall I do? It's not what shall I do. It's how shall I receive. That's, that should be the question he asked. And Jesus said to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now, I have to say that that's a stretch of the imagination, I think. That statement. All these have I kept from my youth up. I really don't think the man really understood what the commandments really spoke about. And of course, you know, Jesus further explained those commandments in Matthew chapter 5. You know, uh, yeah, do not kill. Well, are you angry with your brother? You're in danger of the judgment. Um, you know, do not commit adultery. Look on a woman to lust after her in your heart. You have to commit adultery with her in your heart. You know, it wasn't just letter of the law. It was talking about the, the spirit of the law as well. And then he says in verse, and then when Jesus heard these things, he saith unto them, yet lackest thou one thing, Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, when Jesus listed a few commandments, he didn't say, list the one thou shalt not covet. He didn't state that one. Of course, Jesus being God, he knew this man. He knew him inside and out. He knew his heart. He knew his pet sin, so to speak. And it was covetousness. It was covetousness. And so when Jesus said, you know, sell what you have, distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful. He was very rich. You know, he wasn't going to give the security of his riches for the security of salvation. That's what it boils down to. He wasn't willing. Yet he prided himself in keeping the commandments of God. Well, what Jesus is showing here is, look, the commandments of God weren't given to you to save you. They were given to show you you're a sinner and you need a Savior. Now, we see that in the preceding verses in chapter 9, verse 14, where he spake a parable, verse 9, which trusted in, to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself should be based, and he that humbleth himself should be exalted. So, you know, if we come to God humbling ourselves, admitting that we are sinners, admitting we are unworthy of everlasting life, admitting that we are unworthy of his grace and of his mercy, we will find mercy. But if we come like this Pharisee or this rich young ruler, 
we're not going to find it because we come justifying ourselves. No. See, the law was given not for the purpose of saving us, but the purpose of showing us we are sinners. Galatians 3.24 says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And in fact, in Romans 10 there that we looked at, verse 4 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. In other words, if a person comes to Christ, they come to Christ because they've ceased trusting in the law. They've ended. There's no, there's, they've ended their confidence in the law to justify them. You know, Christ is the end of the law. And so many are ignorant. Many are trusting in their good works, their, their, what they do. Uh, many are ignorant about God's plan for Israel. And in uh, Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own conceits. And he's talking here to Gentiles. And he's warning them, don't be, don't be prideful against the Jews, because you're receiving the gospel, and for the most part, they are not. And then he says that blindness in part has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. In other words, they're going to be blind until the end of this age, and, 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 and during the tribulation period, they're going to turn to, to, to the Lord as a nation. But at verse 26, it says, So all Israel shall be saved, as is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, which when I shall take away their sins, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. You know, they persecuted the people of God. They persecuted the churches. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. And the, and the word fathers here is not capitalized. So, so is, they're beloved for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's sake. That's the fathers. And God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of those promises was the land of Israel. And so he says, for election's sake, they were chosen to receive this land. And then it says, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. God's not changed his mind. You know, Israel is yet, although they're in the land, they're dependent and, and find a lot of security in Gentile nations. But there's going to come a day. When Israel, again, is going to be the, the kingdom of the world. Look at Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. You know, God is not done with Israel. Uh, of course, you know, we go to, to Daniel chapter 9 where he talks about how he's going to bring an end of sins to the nation of Israel. It's going to be very costly for them. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, look at in Matthew 19 verse 28. Verse 27, 28 says, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So there's going to come a day when all the Jews are going to be back in the land, all that are that turn to the Lord during the tribulation period, and Christ comes to set up his millennial reign, and those twelve apostles are going to sit on twelve thrones, they're going to judge the twelve tribes of Israel in the land. You know, Isaiah tells us that there's going to be a highway out of Egypt 
into Israel. And people are going to come up from Egypt and bring their offerings and worship the Lord. And so, Israel still, the promises of Israel will still be fulfilled. Another thing that many people are ignorant about is they're ignorant about the suffering and trials of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. I'm going to go back to 1 Thessalonians in a minute, but just a few things here that I want to consider. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves. Notice, that we should not trust in ourselves. That we should... But in God, who raises dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver, ye also help in together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our hand. You know, you know we, we were, of course, in our Sunday school class this morning, uh, somebody brought out that many times people, many, people, many times people that don't even know God, when trouble comes into their life, they blame for the trouble. Or as we saw the king of Israel, you know, he, he can't take it out on God, so he's, he, t- he takes it out on the man of God. Um, and some people have this idea that if I have trials in my Christian life, I must be doing something wrong. Let me ask you something. Did Elijah do wrong that Jezebel said that she was going to kill him? Was Paul doing wrong when he got this thorn in the flesh? Was Peter doing wrong when, and James, when Herod killed James with a sword and put Peter in prison? Was Job doing wrong? We all know what God said about Job, that he was a righteous man that feared God and eschewed evil. There's none like him. Yet he had the worst troubles of anybody in his day. Now, it may be, it's possible, that you might have troubles because of your sin, but it isn't necessarily so. In the world, we shall have tribulation, Jesus told us. You know, God allows trials in our life, I think for several reasons. Uh, number one, to test our loyalties. Test our loyalties. Uh, God tried Abraham. He tempted, the Bible says he tempted Abraham. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. And what was he doing? He was testing him. And he commanded Abraham to go and offer his only son on an altar. What was he doing? He was testing Abraham's loyalties. I mean, this is his prized son. The only son. The promised heir. Would he trust God, or is he going to favor his son? And we all know that Abraham trusted God. He believed that God would raise him from the dead because of the promise he made to him. He tested his loyalties. By the way, he had tested his loyalties before, and sometimes Abraham failed the test. But at this point in his life, he passed that test. You know, it, sometimes trials are allowed in our life to demonstrate 
the power or evidence of the life of God in us to a lost and dying world. Go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. And by doing so, um, you know, he can, he can silence the enemy. Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 12, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschewed evil? Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and all that, about all that he hath on every side, Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Yeah, God, you know why Job serves you? Because you protected him, you blessed him, you've given him wealth, you've given him a great family, you've given him all these things, that's why he serves you. God said, okay. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth in the presence of the Lord. And we know that God allowed Satan to take away all that Job had, including his family. His wife said, Curse God and die. And he said to her, Thou speakest as a foolish woman. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know what? You know what he is showing the devil here? Look, I don't serve God just because he's good to me, even though he is. But I serve God because it's right. I serve God because it's right. You know, when we demonstrate the power of God to the evidence, as you read, we read this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, those people demonstrated the power or the life of God in their lives by their deaths. And, it, you know, it was the death of Stephen, I believe, that really, really convicted Saul of his own need, his own emptiness, his own hopelessness. A third reason that, that we have suffering and trials in life is to change us. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that the, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And if we endure chastening, uh, God dealeth with us as sons. You know, and the reason we chasten our children is to change them. To bring their will in line with ours. You know, they're born sinners. They're born rebellious. It comes natural to them. And it's our responsibility as parents to channel that will in a right direction. To bring that will into obedience to us so that when they get older and they begin to understand, they'll surrender that will to God. So, these are the reasons why uh, God allows trials in our life. All right, also... Many are ignorant about what happens after death. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in this passage, of course, we're talking about those who died, uh, uh, who are saved. 
Um, but if you notice in verse 13 it says, But I, have not you be, have not, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others have no hope. Now it's important that we understand some words here. The word asleep means a physical death. Physical death for a Christian. It speaks of a rest. It's not, uh, you know, a, a, a soul sleep or anything like that. The soul never sleeps. But it just, just speaks of one who has died. And, but all are going to die. And death in the Bible really is defined as a separation. Uh, in, in John chapter 5, in verse 28 and 29, uh, the Lord there tells us that there be a resurrection of the, of the good and the evil, or we could say of the saved and lost, uh, in, in John 5, verse 29, he, and, he, and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, they that have done good, evil under the resurrection of damnation. So, so everybody is going to have a resurrection. When they die, when anyone dies, whether saved or lost, they don't cease to exist. They don't cease to exist. They don't come back as someone else. I remember some years ago in visitation, Brother Robert and I were visiting together, and we met this man over here off of, I think it was White Street, um, between Wake Forest and Youngsville. And he said that he'd been around a few times. And I didn't catch what he meant the first time. But he, then he further told us that he was a lady in one of those times around. Um, he was a very confused man, and he couldn't be convinced otherwise. But the Bible speaks nowhere of reincarnation. It simply says that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Once you leave this life, there's judgment. Whether if you're saved, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. If you're unsaved, it's going to be the judgment, great white throne judgment. But all will face the judgment. See, death is a separation. It's a separation. Uh, Genesis 2, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God warned them, they shall surely die. And the idea again was, you know, we would say, well, they didn't really die. Yes, they did. They were set apart from God that day. They were separated. There was no more fellowship. In fact, they hid from him. And they eventually did die physically as well. But a man lives forever. Uh, you know, he is an eternal soul or an everlasting soul. Somebody has defined it this way. You know, John 3.16 says that, that he gives unto us everlasting life. And the difference between that which is eternal and that which is everlasting is, if you know, God is eternal. He had no beginning and no ending. We are everlasting. We have a beginning. But we don't have an ending. We don't have an ending. The rich man in hell, Luke 16, he was living. He was living. But he was separated from God. Ephesians 2, 1 says, uh, And you hath he quickened, who were dead. And that word dead means you're separated from God. It doesn't mean you aren't living. That you don't have life. 2 Timothy 4.1 says that Jesus will judge the quick and the dead. 
In other words, those who have life of God and those who do not have the life of God, those who are separated from God. That is appearing. In Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, kind of describes for us this judgment of the, the, those that have life, those that are saved, and they will be, he, he will uh, cause them uh, uh, priests and, and um, yeah, what's the, I'm trying to remember the terminology he uses. Um, they shall be priests of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On them, on such the second death hath no power. They shall be priests of God and shall reign with him a thousand years. The unsaved dead were going to be resurrected to stand before God. They're going to be judged and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Separated from God. But this church at Corinth, or um, Thessalonica was confused about what happens to people. What happens to some of our members who have died? Where are they? You know, they had been waiting for the Lord to come, but some had died. And so Paul reminds them, look, they are asleep. They are resting. They are waiting. Your death for a child of God is temporary. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus shall God bring with him. And again, that word sleep means they have, they have died. It's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, where it says many sleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 18, if, 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 uh, if, um, 1 Corinthians 15, 18. Uh, I'm trying to remember how it goes there. Anyway, it says... Uh, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. You know, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, then all thing, we're, you know, our faith is vain. And if that is true, if there's no resurrection, they that have fallen asleep, or those who have died, saved, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. No, they didn't perish. You know, this death or this sleep is only temporary. Because Jesus, the Bible says here, those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So it's temporary. To the child of God, death is simply the vehicle from this life into the presence of God. That's what it is. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Precious. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul gives a few more details to the church at Corinth in his second letter to them when he says in verse 1, For we know. Now, that is a statement of confidence. We know. We know. We have knowledge of it. We're not ignorant about this. We know that if our earthly house, that's this body, of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is in this body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. 
Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing, or for this purpose, is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. We talked about that earnest of the Spirit this morning. That earnest of the Spirit is the, the pledge or assurance that this very act he's talking about here will be one day brought to pass. We are going to get a new body when we leave this old body. When the, or, you know, either when we leave this life or the Lord comes for us, whichever comes first. Therefore, verse 6, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. While we're here living, we're not in the presence of the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Of course, this is also spoken above in, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verses 21 and 22. I'm sorry, it's Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For our conversation, for our conversation is in heaven. And that word conversation, conversation has the idea of a commonwealth, a government. Uh, we'll look at that a little bit later, more a little bit later. But anyway, for whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that we may fashion like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So the, the body that sleeps, you know, when the body sleeps or leaves this life of a child of God, the spirit and soul go to be with the Lord. The body awaits that glorified body spoken of here in First Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 14 through 16, where he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, that word prevent means we will not go before, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. See, death for a child of God is just the vehicle from this earthly life, from this defiling body to that glorified body into the presence of God. And so we're not to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep. We're not to be ignorant about the Lord's coming for us. And the Lord's coming for us is in two stages. The first stage is described for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. And then the second stage is described in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And many details in other places. The first stage we refer to as the rapture, which simply means caught up. And that's what the word is used in the passage, verse 17 then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up really means to seize by force. The idea is, picture if you will, someone going into a place, into enemy territory, and delivering captives. Delivering captives. Uh during World War II, there was some, I'm trying to remember what they were called. 
What's what's the white horses that Patton delivered out of Austria? Huh? I don't understand the name. I've got two of you saying it at the same time. Anyway, these were white, you know, fancy show type horses. And the owners of them, they were in actually in Soviet territory, nearing the end of World War II. And the owners of them um, were fearful, afraid of allowing these horses to fall in the hands of the Russians. Because they, they felt they'd be, they were, they were worth a lot of money. So he sent a letter, somehow, to General Patton. And Patton, uh, you know, it was in, it was in what was considered um, Russian territory, you know, and they were getting close together, you know, the, near the end of the war. And, but Patton sent trucks in, gave orders and sent trucks in to bring those horses out and deliver those horses. You know, he went into enemy territory, so to speak, and delivered. He seized, if you will. He took by force, if you will, these horses and, and their owners and brought them out into the, the free world. Um, first, I learned about that story. They were at Huntington County Fair years ago. There were some of them horses, and they, and they told about that. How Patton, and they were thankful to the United States and General Patton for rescuing their horses. That's the idea here. You know, we are, we are living in enemy territory. This, this world, you know, God is the, Satan is the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4 tells us. He's the prince of the power of the air. And when the Lord comes for us and the trumpet sounds, we're going to be seized out, taken out. Now, you might ask, well, why would he have to do that? Wouldn't they just want rid of us? No. They just don't want rid of us. Any more than they wanted the Waldensians to go to another country and live. Because they didn't want their heresy spread there either. They hate God. And the, how they take out their vengeance on God is against God's people. They want to control. They want control. So anyway... So, it's going to be seized out. We will meet the Lord in the air, verse 17 is. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Of course, there's other passages of Scripture that give the same idea. John 14, in verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's going to receive us unto himself. Revelation 4 and verse 1. You know, the, the first three chapters talks about the churches. Revelation 4 verse 1 starts out, John says, I was in the spirit of the Lord's day, and I heard a voice say, come up hither. Come up hither. And immediately what he sees is the throne of God. And, and, and multitudes around the throne. He sees heaven. He sees the scene in heaven. You know, we have Old Testament examples of this. Enoch was taken out. Before judgment came, Noah, like Israel, went through the judgment. He was delivered through the judgment. So, we will meet the Lord in the air. 
it's going to be a removal of those that are saved. A resurrection of the saved only. Look at again at verses 16 and 17. Where it says, For the Lord himself, well, verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's, that's the key right there. For the Lord himself, verse 16, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ. Of course, those who were saved that died, believing in Christ, that had trusted Christ as Savior, shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpets are sounded, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This corruption must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. And so, again, he's talking about we, we who are saved. It's a select group. Again, Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our home, our government, Really, the the word conversation there means a form of government and laws by which which it is administered. You know, our, for example, you know, the laws of our land are uh, put out by the Constitution, stated by the Constitution or or the state of North Carolina and their Constitution. But, you know, our form of government or laws by which it is administered speaks of a commonwealth. Our laws that govern us are not the laws of the world. I don't obey the government of the state of North Carolina because they have laws. I obey it because of what God commands. And I obey God's laws. I strive to obey God's laws. And God's laws are greater. You know, if a person's going to keep the commandments of God, he's going to strive to honor the laws of the land. They don't contradict. We might say, well, sometimes the laws of the land, they pass laws of the land that are contrary to God. That is true. But we are to obey those ordinances of man that are, that are in keeping with God's commands. And even when they command us or make laws that are contrary to the word of God, we are not to be rebellious in our spirit. Or attitudes. Even when we have to disobey. You see, we have a government. A form of government. Our conversation is in heaven. Whence also we look for our Savior. Look at Matthew. We see this selection or this choosing of people that this rapture is not a taking of everybody. Uh, Matthew 24 and, and verses uh, 36 beginning at verse 36, it says, That day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven but Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinded to mill, the one shall be taken, the other left. 
Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the goodman of the house had known in what hour watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant, whom when his Lord, whom his Lord, when he find, cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. You know, we're going to be priests and kings of God. And then it says, but in if that evil servant, notice he says an evil servant, shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day, when he looketh not for him, in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's talking about the lost. So, these removed at the rapture are a select group. They're the saved. It's not a worldwide catching away. We see also then the day of the Lord, as it's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord. You know, the rapture is never referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord refers to the day of his coming in judgment. That's what the day of the Lord refers to. For you yourselves know perfectly, verse 2, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction, in other words, it's judgment, shall come upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, again, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you asleep. In other words, ye either, brethren, you know what, you know what brethren do? You know what children of God do? They watch. They prepare. They're prepared. They don't know when it's coming. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know when the Lord's coming. But this we do know. He is coming. And he's told us to watch. You know, when somebody tells me they're coming to my house, I watch. Now, I don't know what minute they're going to drive in. But I have a dog that doesn't like doorbells. Nor people knocking on the front door. And when, he, when they do, he scares them. So I watch. Because I know they're coming. See, I'm prepared for them coming. And God tells us that God's people will watch. They will be looking for him. And he that hath this hope in him of the Lord's coming, 1 John 3 tells us, even as he purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You know, to watch really means that we're, we're waiting in expectation, we're expecting the Lord to come, and we want to be pleasing in his sight. You know, I don't want, I don't want people, when they knock on my door or ring the doorbell, to have the, door, the dog charging up against the door, rawr, 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 and scaring them to death. Or putting them in fear. You know what? We don't have to be in fear of the Lord's coming. We know it's coming. We know he is. But the world doesn't. 
And he's going to come upon them like a thief in the night. Oh, you know, the world thinks they're, going to, they're solving all the world's problems. You know, they have all the solutions to the pandemic. They have all the solutions through climate change. They have all these solutions. And, and they're, going to, they're going to create this utopia on earth. And everybody will have everything equal. You're going to rid re- of re- all racism and so on and so forth. It's a pipe dream. They're talking peace and safety. And the Bible says there's going to come sudden destruction like a woman in travail. How many of you knew three days before your child was born when exactly those labor pains were going to start? You see, we don't know. They don't, the world doesn't know. We know he's coming. They don't. You know, the evil servant in Matthew chapter five, uh, 24 that we just read about, he's going to receive judgment. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a, that's a description that's given to those that end up in hell. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In, in Revelation chapter 5, or Revelation chapter 6, from chapter 19, describes for us the day of the Lord, his judgment. And it culminates with him coming back to earth on that white horse and we coming back with him and he's going to destroy those enemies of his out of the sword of his mouth with the word of God. But God does not pour out his righteous wrath on those who trust in him. Look at verse 4 again. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. See, God has appointed His wrath to the unbelieving, wicked sinners who will not receive Him. But He's not appointed that wrath to those who trust in Him. We're not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. We believe that He died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. See, God will not pour out His righteous judgment on those who have put their trust in Him, repented of their sin, put their faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Therefore, we don't have to sorrow as others which have no hope. Therefore, we don't have to fear the coming judgment of God. Because our judgment was taken out on our Savior. And when we received Him as our Lord and Savior, God accepted Him as our payment for for our sin. And we've been set free. The Almighty Judge has declared us justified. Declared us righteous. 
We are no longer under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. See, we are now uncondemned. And we have hope. We have the promise of God. We have the earnest of the Spirit that assures us that the redemption of our vile body will one day come to pass and we will be made like unto His glorious body. What a glorious day that will be when Jesus we shall see. And so Paul, as he wrote to them, said, Wherefore, comfort one another, encourage one another with these words. We have hope. You know, the world is full of chaos and confusion, but we have hope. We don't have to live in fear. We have the Lord. And He's still on the throne. And He's coming for us. So rejoice 